0: Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, pizza lovers in Russia are really honked off. And I don't know if you followed this in the news, but Domino's ran a special ad campaign in Russia. And they said that they would give a 100 free pizzas per year for life to anyone willing to go out and tattoo the Domino's logo on a visible part of their body. Now, I'm sure Domino's was thinking, who would be crazy enough to do that? Well, about a bazillion people did. They went out and got Domino's Logo tattooed on their arms, on their you know neck, or wherever. And Domino's suddenly realized they were in trouble. They had overpromised, you know, this hundred pizzas per year for life. They had overpromised and they could not deliver. How many of you know? It's not a good thing for a pizza company not to be able to deliver. <laughs> You'll get this on your way home from church. All right. Yeah. So so they changed the rules of the game. They withdrew their offer. They said, oh, no, this is not for everybody. This is for the first 350 people who have the tattoo. So you got a lot of Russians out there who got the tattoo and are not going to get the pizzas, and they're angry. And this is a picture... This is a picture of all the things we chase in this life. We chase, 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 because they promise to give us happiness, they promise to give us fulfillment, they promise to give us security, but you know what? They don't deliver. We we are in week one of a new four-part series that we're calling The Chase. Chase, this is a study of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. So why don't you start looking for Ecclesiastes right now, okay? It's a little beyond Psalms in the Old Testament portion of your body. And I want to put a plug in here for Christ Community Church's daily Bible reading schedule. So we have put together a schedule. If you read a little bit of the Bible every day, it will eventually take you through the entire uh, God's Word. It's called the Bible Savvy Schedule. And uh, the Bible-savvy schedule is about to jump into the book of Ecclesiastes in another week or so here. And so we thought we would do a series on Ecclesiastes to kind of motivate your Bible reading. So you'll read passages during the week and we'll preach on Ecclesiastes on the weekends. And if you're wondering where to pick up a Bible-savvy reading schedule, two ways you could get it. There is a hard copy. And It's got your name on it. It's in a spiral-bound journal, and you could pick it up at any of the four uh, bookshops at our four campuses called Resource. And that that journal that goes with it gives you a space each day where you could write down an insight and an application to your life from God's Word. So I'd encourage you to pick that up. Or secondly, just download our CCC phone app, okay? And that app, part of the app, is the Bible Savvy Journal. So we want to get you into scripture, reading God's word daily. Let me give you some background to Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes was written by a guy who doesn't identify himself by name. Uh, He simply refers to himself as the teacher. He calls himself the teacher three times in the opening chapter, three times in the closing chapter, and once in the middle of the book. The teacher. Now, many Bible scholars feel that the teacher was actually King Solomon. And there are a couple of good reasons to believe this. The first reason is, you know, look with me at the opening verse of Ecclesiastes, and you'll see how the teacher identifies himself. Okay? Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1, the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Son of David, king in Jerusalem. Okay? Son of David, got to be Solomon king in Jerusalem. That would fit Solomon as well. But some Bible scholars point out, well, the Hebrew expression here, son of David, doesn't necessarily mean David's exact son. It could mean a descendant of David. Okay, that's the Hebrew expression, descendant. So it could be a future king, some king a couple of centuries later who follows in David's line. However, I think the best option is still Solomon. A second reason I would say that Solomon is probably the guy who authored Ecclesiastes is because the writer of Ecclesiastes, revealing many details about his personal life, those details closely match the details of Solomon's life. The author of Ecclesiastes, for example, had a reputation for wisdom. Well, so did Solomon. The author of Ecclesiastes was incredibly wealthy. Yeah, So was Solomon. The author engaged in extensive building projects, Solomon. The author had an unrestrained fondness for women, Solomon. The author eventually made a huge mess of his life, definitely Solomon. In fact, toward the end of Solomon's life, Scripture tells us that uh, Solomon had many foreign wives, and they turned his heart against the living God, and he began to follow false gods and practicing idolatry. And so God punished Solomon. God raised up adversaries inside and outside his kingdom to punish Solomon. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how things ended for Solomon. But we can surmise that the punishment that God brought to bear on his life had its impact and that Solomon turned back to God. He repented of his idolatry. And that's the point at which we can imagine that he sat down and he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. So he writes as both a cynic. I mean, he's a guy who had tried everything. He had tried everything. And he'd found that nothing delivered. Nothing delivered. And and, and he writes not only as a cynic, then he writes as a wise and godly teacher who had come to the end of his life. He had you know, gotten smart, turned back to God, and now he's writing other people to say, please don't make the same mistakes that I made. So today we're going to launch our study of Ecclesiastes, the chase, by looking at the sorts of things that at one time Solomon had pursued, but like Domino's Pizza, they didn't deliver. So he didn't get what what he'd been promised. And the truth of the matter, friends, is that as we look at these things, we've all tried pursuing them. So, if you've not taken the outline from your program yet, I encourage you to do that. Jot down number one. What's his first pursuit? It's the pursuit of wisdom. The pursuit of wisdom. Let me begin reading at verse 12 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind." This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you, if you know anything about Solomon's life, this certainly sounds like Solomon. He says, I applied my mind, verse 13, to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. Uh, When Solomon came to the throne of Israel, he was very insecure. He was following in the footsteps of his dad, King David, who had been an enormously popular, enormously successful king. In fact, historians tell us that David ruled over Israel during its golden era. So Solomon is stepping into some really big sandals here. He's, about, about, he's a bit nervous uh, as to whether or not he's up, up to the job. And so one night, God appears to Solomon in a dream. It takes place at Gibeon. At Gibeon, God, God appears to Solomon and says, Solomon, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you ask for. What did Solomon ask for? You remember the story? Call it out. He asked for wisdom. He asked for wisdom. By the way, I've I've visited Gibeon on a number of occasions. I always pray the same Solomon prayer. I'm hoping if it worked for Solomon, maybe it'll work for me. You know, God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. So God made Solomon very wise. And he was, he was not only wise in terms of knowing what's best to do in every situation, God gave him this ginormous knowledge. Solomon knew everything about everything. If you read the Old Testament account of his life, he knew about science, he knew about literature, he knew about philosophy, he knew about architecture. Okay. And, and there, 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 was, there was an upside to all this wisdom, but there was a downside that came with it as well. Solomon discovered that the pursuit of wisdom didn't live up to its billing. It didn't deliver its promises on what it promised. And he uses three expressions in the scripture that I just read to you a moment ago. Three expressions that, by the way, you'll see pop up again and again and again as you read through Ecclesiastes. These three expressions to describe the downsides of pursuing Wisdom. So the first expression, and you'll find all three in verse 14, the first expression is under the sun. You see that? If you've got your own Bible, underline it. I've seen all things done under the sun. Under the sun pops up 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. So whenever you see it, as you're reading through it the next several weeks, you know, underline it, circle it. What does it mean? Well, under the sun refers to this present world, okay? This present world as opposed to eternity. I want you to picture something, okay? I want you to imagine that you're holding a string in your hand, and the string begins in your hand, and it stretches all the way up to the moon. It's a pretty long string, all right? And this string represents your life. Your life as it begins in this world and your life as it continues on into eternity. Now, the question is, what portion of that string represents your life in the here and now? How much? A fraction of an inch. See, the rest of it is all your life wherever you spend eternity. Your life in eternity. All the way to the moon. You know, what Solomon is beating the drum for throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is that we've got to stop chasing those things that only matter in the here and now. Our time under the sun is so short. Eternity is so long. And Solomon wants us to understand that we would be fools to give all our time and energy to under the sun pursuits. Now, what does this look like with respect to the pursuit of wisdom? Well, friends, stop and consider for a moment all the things we are constantly scrambling to learn. Uh, We want to know all about the latest iPhone. Uh, We want to know all about which stocks to invest in. We want to know how to get high marks on our SATs we want to know how many calories we consume today we want to know who the cubs are going to trade for in the off season we want to know where the best places to eat are we want to know should we buy a used car or a new car we're we're constantly gaining wisdom about a lot of stuff aren't we but is it all under the sun stuff is it all this world only stuff And does our quest for this world-only knowledge leave us with little time for pursuing a knowledge of God, God's word, God's character, God's will for our lives? Second expression that Solomon uses in verse 14 to describe this pursuit of wisdom, the, the downside of it, you'll find it in the middle of the verse. You see the word meaningless? Circle the word meaningless. This is the key term in the book of Ecclesiastes, pops up 39 times, comes from a Hebrew word for breath or vapor, breath or vapor, Solomon uses this word to describe, to describe things that we can't hold on to, they're, they're, they're like a puff of smoke, okay? they, they slip between our fingers and, and then they're gone. And once again, Solomon's point seems to be that so many of the things that we pursue in this life, wisdom included, have to do with things that are here today and gone tomorrow. They're meaningless, ultimately meaningless. They're puffs of smoke. Which leads to the third expression that Solomon uses in verse 14 to describe the pursuit of the wrong things. What does Solomon call this activity? In the closing line of the verse, he calls it a chasing after the the wind you hear the strains of the Kansas song coming through here dust in the wind nine times in the book of Ecclesiastes Solomon says we are chasing 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 and never catching you know I think this is especially true with regard to the pursuit of wisdom we live in an information age or there, there is an infinite amount of data at our fingertips. If we want to know anything about anything, all we have to do is Google it, right? But, but what happens when we Google something? Does, does it really lead to wisdom and understanding, or do we often feel like we're chasing the wind? Sue, Sue and I were watching a movie on Netflix the other night, Chappaquiddick. Uh, story about se- Senator Ted Kennedy and uh, that accident where his car ended up in the water and his uh, young female aide drowned. And so as I'm watching the movie, whenever I watch one of those historical type movies, I want to know how much is fabrication, how much has, you know, really happened. And so I googled Chappaquiddick, which is really hard to spell. Yeah. And uh, so I googled Chappaquiddick. What am I going to learn about Chappaquiddick? 1,190,000 results. You say, well, you know, your problem was you Googled an historical event. Now, if you want some practical know-how, you know, just choose a different topic. So I decided I'm going to try a different topic. Okay, let, let's say you're a, a parent of a preschooler and you're trying to potty train that preschooler. So let, let, let's, let's Google potty training, 61,400,000 results. Ask a simple question and you don't get a simple answer. In this age of information, sometimes the pursuit of wisdom feels like a chasing after the wind. Here's the second thing Solomon chased after, the pursuit of pleasure. The pursuit of pleasure. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes. We're going to pick it up at the beginning of chapter 2 now. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? Okay, for the next several paragraphs, Solomon talks about a wide variety of pleasures that he had pursued, but none of them gave him a lasting buzz. Their their, their enjoyment was all short-lived. The first kind of pleasure that he mentions here in verse 2 is is laughter. You see that laughter? In other words, Solomon set out to entertain himself, set out to have a good time. Uh, Neil Postman a college professor wrote a very seminal book back in 1985 a book that became a bestseller people have been talking about it ever since a book with the intriguing title amusing ourselves to death and that that was his critique of contemporary culture we have this tendency to to amuse ourselves to you know to death and the prime culprit that he cited in his book back in 1985 was TV. Yeah, TV seems to be running constantly in our homes and we're watching sitcoms and football games and reality shows and, and Netflix movies and on and on it goes, just amusing ourselves to death. I was on the train headed into Chicago a week ago and there was a young woman a couple seats over and she was telling her friend, she said, did you know that Netflix just came out with a new season of I leaned in, I didn't hear. I don't know what, what it was the new season of, but I heard the next thing she said. She said, the last two nights I've watched every episode. I thought, yuck, really? So, so binge watching your favorite TV show, how, how, how's that for lasting pleasure? Solomon said, I tried laughter, I tried entertainment. The buzz didn't last. Okay, look, look what he says next. What else did he try? What other pleasure? Verse three, I tried cheering myself with wine. Stop there. That, that's a popular one in our culture today. You know, food and drink, you know, eating out. Now, true confession, a couple of Saturday nights ago, after our Saturday night service, Sue and I went out to a local restaurant because a, a friend of ours and his band were playing on the back patio, the, the wine bar. So uh, we were on the patio, we went to hear him play, and little did we know that the restaurant had hired a photographer to take advertising pictures. So, I'm just saying this, so, (laughs) you know, when you Google this restaurant, (laughs) guess whose mugshot you're gonna see? (laughs) Pastor Jim and Sue at their favorite funky wine bar pleasure seekers. Yeah. <laughs> well, wow. so, so does eating out, does fine wine and dining produce lasting pleasure? Solomon says, no, gets old, you know, drains the bank account. You just put on a lot of weight. <laughs> Back to Ecclesiastes chapter two, look at verse seven. I bought male and female slaves. I had other slaves who were born in my house. Stop there. Solomon had all the slaves he needed to wait on him hand and foot. He never had to mow his lawn, never had to fix a meal, never had to vacuum his palace, never had to wash his chariot. This was all done for him by slaves. And many of Solomon's female slaves were also bedtime companions. The Bible says that he had many wives and 300 concubines. The concubines formed his harem. Solomon could sleep with a different woman every night of the year. He made Hugh Hefner look like a choir boy. But all that sex didn't satisfy Solomon. Nor did his incredible wealth. Look at verse 8. He says, I amassed silver and gold for myself. I amassed it. And the treasure of kings and provinces. I mean, Solomon could walk into any store and buy anything he wanted. I mean, you just stop and ma- imagine that for a moment. I mean, it, what, what store would you run to after today's service? Furniture store, electronic store, uh, automobile lot, sales lot. If if Bill Gates handed you his checkbook and said, whatever you want to spend, go for it. Okay, unrestrained buying power. Wow. One last source of pleasure that Solomon mentions in Ecclesiastes 2. Look at the middle of verse 8. I acquired male and female singers. Oh, this is so cool. He had his favorite music anytime he wanted it. Forget about Spotify, he had live bands. Playing whatever he wanted them to play. You know, my band would be playing nonstop James Taylor stuff. Yeah. This dude was experienced at chasing pleasure. And so, what does he conclude about this pursuit? Drop down to verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was, and here you're going to get our three expressions, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. The more we pursue pleasure, Solomon says, the shorter each fix becomes. You know, and, and, and then we become so bored. Listen, boredom is epidemic in our country today, is it not? We become so bored between our pleasure fixes. We become so bored between our vacation trips, so bored between purchases, so bored between ball games, so bored between dinner out with friends. We've got to have more, 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 more. The pursuit of pleasure doesn't deliver on its promises. Number three, the pursuit of work. We're going to backtrack in Ecclesiastes 2. We had jumped ahead, but now we're going to go back to verse 4. Verses 4 to 6. Solomon says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards, I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. If you know anything about Solomon, you know he was an amazing builder. His construction team, we know this from the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, his construction team took took seven years to build a magnificent temple in Jerusalem. And they took 13 years to build a ginormous palace for Solomon. And that was only one of many houses that Solomon designed and constructed for himself. And he didn't stop with houses. He built entire cities. I, I visited the ruins of ancient Hazer and Megiddo and Gezer and other cities that Solomon built. Cities with parks, cities with gardens, cities with, with fountains. And so, so you could just assume that he would come to the end of his life and he would look back on all his accomplishments and his chest would swell with pride. Look at all I've done. But that's not so. Drop down to verse 17 of chapter 2, and listen to what he says. So I hated life. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is, here we go again, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish? Yet they'll have control over all the fruit of my toil, into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. You follow Solomon's line of argument here? Solomon says, if you put all your time and effort into your work. Now listen. Listen you put all your time and effort into into your job, the the day will come when you'll step back and you'll conclude it wasn't worth it. I mean, for for, for one thing, you'll realize that your whole identity was wrapped up in your job, and now now that your job is completed, you don't know who you are. You you don't know where to discover your identity. And and besides that, you, you... You had to turn over your work to somebody else who might now undo everything you did. I I remember having lunch with a a friend of mine a few years ago who had been the president for 18 years of a prestigious college, but he took an early retirement because he wanted to spend some years writing. And so the, the, the college was very kind to him. They gave him his own study space in the library, desk, and quiet and so on, and about two years into this new career of writing, he needed to check some books out at the library, campus library. So he took them down to the circulation desk and the student working behind the desk looked at him, the president of the college, and said, excuse me, I'll need to see some ID. And he said, you know, it was then that he woke up to the realization, here, here he'd been the president of the school for 18 years, he'd been out just two years, and nobody knew him anymore. He says, I came to the conclusion the old adage is true that if you stick your hand into a bowl of water and you pull it out, the size hole you leave, that's how much your contributions at work will be missed. Yeah, this is what Solomon is saying here. All the work, all the work that we do, for what? And, you know, you don't have to wait until retirement to experience the reality I've just been describing. You know, every day we work, every day we work, 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 work at things. And what is the reward for our work? Solomon would say it's more work. And and don't stop working because the minute you do, the plates that you've kept spinning, they're going to fall to the ground and they're going to crash. I mean, come on, this is true. You say, well, I'm a high school student. How is this true of me? Well, this last week you studied for a geometry test and and you aced the test. Now, that's good news. Now, the bad news is there's going to be another geometry test next week and the week after that and the week after that and the week after that. And you say, "Yeah, but I'll eventually finish geometry." Well, that's good news, but the bad news is, after geometry, there's algebra, algebra two, and then precalculus, and then college, and then more work, 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 work. Or, or let's say, let's say you're a, you're a parent of a couple of preschoolers, all right? You, you, your work at the end of the day, when you finally get your little cherubs off to bed. It looks so peaceful, sleeping there. Your, your work is to clean up, pick up the house. Looks like a tornado swept through the home, right? And everything goes back into its place. And it's just where it's supposed to be, right? And how long does that last? See, Sue and I watched both sets of our grandkids this summer. I'll tell you how long it lasts. After we did all the work of picking up every night. It, it's wasted, By the time breakfast rolls around the next day, the house is trashed again. Everything you do is undone. Everything you do is undone. Or let's say you're a salesperson and you had a stellar week this last week. You saved your company's biggest account. I mean, a customer was getting to walk. A competitor had come after your biggest customer. You saved the day. You won the battle. And you know what, what, what you, you'll have to show for it? Next week, there'll be a different competitor coming after the same customer. And there may come a day when the customer leaves you entirely and just walks off. And you're going to say, everything I worked for. Let's say you're a medical doctor and you've got a long-standing patient who walks into your clinic this week and you look back and you remember with fondness the time when when she broke her arm in a skiing accident and you you set it and it mended and it's whole. And just a year ago, she had bronchitis and you diagnosed it and you treated it and she's all better. But today she comes in with a diagnosis of cancer stage four. So how are you going to fix that one? You know, all the work we do is constantly being undone, Solomon says. And when we finally hang it it up, guess what we discover? The world will keep spinning without us. We will soon be forgotten. Aren't you glad you came to church today to hear this? You know, you should have stayed home and binge-watched your favorite TV show. If the pursuit of wisdom... And the pursuit of pleasure and the pursuit of work are dead-end streets. Then what road should we take to truly enjoy, to enjoy both this life and the life to come? Number four, the pursuit of God. The pursuit of God. Now, we're coming to the end of Ecclesiastes 2. I want you to look at verse 24. Solomon says something that's a bit unsettling initially. He says, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink. And to find satisfaction in their own toil. Now, you come to this verse and you say, well, wait a second. Solomon, you're confusing me. I mean, you you just told me a short bit ago that the pursuit of pleasure won't satisfy me. And now you say that a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink. And after that, you said the pursuit of work won't satisfy me. But now you're telling people to find satisfaction in their own toil. Well, make up your mind, dude. Which is it? Well, Solomon would say, keep reading. Middle of verse 24, this too I see is from the hand of God. This too is from, what is from the hand of God? What's he talking about here? The ability to find satisfaction in the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of work. Keep reading. Verse 25, for without him, without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? You know, to the person who pleases him, it's God who gives wisdom and knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, God gives the task of gathering and storing up well just to hand it over to the one who pleases God. And that's meaningless. That's a chasing after the wind. By the way, Solomon makes the same point that we find here in verses 24 to 26. He makes the same point about four or five other times in the book of Ecclesiastes. So keep your eyes open for it. What's the point? The point is that when we, listen, when we pursue wisdom, pleasure, or work as an end in themselves, we're going to be disappointed. They are going to let us down. We won't truly enjoy life. However, when we pursue God... When we pursue God first and foremost, then God gives us the ability to enjoy wisdom and pleasure and work. I gotta say that again because this this is the theme. This is the big takeaway from Ecclesiastes. Don't miss it, when we pursue God first and foremost, then God is the one who gives us the ability to enjoy wisdom and pleasure and work. See, these things aren't bad things in themselves. They're just not to be treated as ultimate things. They're not to be treated as the most important things in our lives. Because if we do that, they won't satisfy us. Our best effort must be devoted to pursuing God. And then God will give us the ability to enjoy these other things in our lives. Now please note, side note here, the pursuit of God is an ongoing activity. You know, we're talking about pursuing, 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 pursuing. It's not a one-and-done sort of thing. It's not the same as our one-time decision to surrender our lives to Jesus as Savior and King. As you heard, 39 people did that across our four campuses last weekend. You know, that th- that point of surrender is an important starting starting place. If you've never done it before, there needs to come a time in your life when you humble yourself before Almighty God and you say, oh God, you are holy and I am a sinner and and my sin countless times in the course of a day has separated me from you. And the downside of that separation is, is when you separate from God who's the giver of life, the result is death. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says spiritual death that begins on the inside, physical death at the end of this life, eternal death in the world to come. But you've heard us say this many times at Christ Community Church. The good news is that God loves you so much he sent you his son to take the death you deserve to die. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was taking the death you deserve to die. He was paying the penalty for the sins of those who would ultimately surrender their lives to him. Jesus rose from the dead and he now lives to give you forgiveness to give you a brand new life that begins the moment you surrender your life to him have you ever done that have you ever surrendered your life to Christ you know that that's how the pursuit of God begins. If you've never done that, I hope you'll do that even before you leave one of our campuses today, that you'll bow your heart and you'll say, okay, I'm all in. Jesus, I want to be yours. I want you to be my savior, my king. That's where it begins, but it doesn't end there. We've got to keep on pursuing God day after day after day so that God, God enables us to enjoy pleasure and wisdom and work. See, it all, it, it all comes down... It all comes down to developing some God-pursuing habits. Habits. I just finished a a profound little book by a philosopher by the name of James K.A. Smith. Dr. Smith has written a book called You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love. And his contention in the book is that our habits, now listen to this, our habits reveal what we truly love. Our habits reveal what we truly love. So, we can say that we love God. And if we truly do, then we will develop God-pursuing habits. Those habits will reveal a love for God, and they will shape our lives. Shape our lives so that we we become the kind of people who have the capacity to enjoy life because the enjoyment of life comes from God. So you love God, you develop God-pursuing habits, and those habits shape your life. Now, he asks the question in his book, but but what if your primary love, what if your first love is not a love for God? Truthfully, what if your first love is sports or your first love is friends Your buddies or your first love are the things that you can buy, material things. If this is your first love, it'll be revealed in corresponding habits. You will engage in sports-pursuing habits or friend-pursuing habits or material things-pursuing habits, and those will shape your life. Now here's an interesting insight from the book that I found especially profound. Dr. Smith says that many Christ followers he's run into don't believe that it's God pursuing habits that shape our lives. They believe it's Bible knowledge that ultimately shapes our lives. The argument goes like this. You know, we fill our minds with God's word saturate our minds with God's word. We read the Bible every day. We listen to Bible-based sermons on the weekend. We join a community group to study the Bible together. We listen to podcasts of our favorite preacher during the week who's teaching the Bible. And all that Bible knowledge saturates our thinking so so that we make Bible-informed decisions that shape our lives. So our thinking shapes our lives, and Doctor Smith says, "Whoa, whoa, wait a second! Really? Your thinking shapes your decisions, which shape your 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 lives. Stop and think about that one for a moment. How many decisions do you make in the course of a day? Hundreds. How many of those decisions do you actually think about? Very few." You know there are a handful that you think through carefully but most of the decisions are made by impulse they're a response something comes up and we respond to it automatically habitually oh a habitu- where where does the impact of the decisions we make where does it come from it comes from our habits our responses are determined by our habits things that we do automatically in, in fact Dr. Smith says, we can say that we love God, but if the, the habits of our lives are these sorts of habits over here, this is the kind of person we're going to become, not this person over here. This, this is really a profound thought. Let, let me illustrate this, okay? You know, what are the God-pursuing habits of your life? Or or what are the habits in general? What are the things that you you do without thinking? You do do automatically every day. So when you get up and you sit down at the breakfast table in the morning, do you habitually reach for God's word, your your Bible and your journal, to allow God to speak to you, to jot something down? Or, Or do you reach habitually for your cell phone, to check texts and emails and the weather for the day, and your news app, and what do you habitually do? Okay, When when you get a new paycheck, or you get money from babysitting, let's say if you're a student, what do you habitually do with that money? Do you automatically write out a check to the Lord's work, or maybe electronically have it taken from your paycheck, as many people do around here, or do you habitually start to think, how can I spend that money? What, what are the habits that are shaping your life? Are they these habits or are they, they God-pursuing habits? What about your drive time on the way to work? What do you habitually do? Do you listen to sports radio? You know, or, or maybe you've got some you know, audio Bible you listen to. or You spend the time, you say habitually what I do is I spend the time in prayer. What about when the weekend rolls around? Is, is gathering with other believers to worship God, is it a part of a, a habit? It's automatic. It's absolute. It's a given. This is how we spend the weekend. We go to church. Or do you look at your calendar and say, well, let's see what other activities the kids are involved in or look out the back, at the backyard, what yard work has to be done. and you, you sort of make the decision based upon other habits, pursuing other things. God-pursuing habits like reading the Bible and praying and serving and giving and talking to others about Jesus, habitually trying to bring Jesus up in conversation and gathering for worship and caring for the poor, these things that if they'll become habitual for us, they will not only reveal that God is the first love of our lives, though those habits will shape us, friends, into the kind of people who have the capacity to enjoy life, to enjoy wisdom and pleasure and work. You get it? Good. Let me pray with you. Lord God, as we make application of what we learned today, how critical this is for our lives, how easy it is to discard what we've just learned, how how easy it is to treat it like... Bible knowledge, as we mentioned a few moments ago. We fill our head with it, assuming that it's automatically going to transform our lives. But it doesn't until it becomes habit. So right now, in the quietness of our hearts, I pray that you would reveal to each of us what are the habits that are leading us down the wrong path. And they're not necessarily bad habits. They're just not God-pursuing habits. And they're taking up all our time. And as a result, they're shaping our lives in a direction we ultimately don't want to go. And what are the habits we've neglected, God? What are the God-pursuing habits that we've taken a pass on or we've been too lazy to develop? Oh, God, with the strength, the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to get after things this week that become habitual in our life and cause us to pursue you so that you make sense of life, you give us the capacity to enjoy what we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.